So today we are in the fifth commandment, uh, the commandment to honor your father and mother. And as we come to the second table of the commandments, the second half of things, things become a little bit more straightforward. The commandments are less and less qualified, and they're delivered in short, punchy statements. Now, that makes them really no less profound. As we've noted, the fourth and fifth commandments are the only positively stated commandments. That is, what is left after idolatry and hypocrisy have been chipped away are these commandments, a day of rest and a day to honor father and mother. And it seems that, I'm just, the train's coming, the train's coming, just just give me a minute, yeah, all right, and resume. So, it seems that the fourth and the fifth commandments um, have little to do with one another. A day of rest, honoring father and mother, right, they're kind of disconnected, but when you set the commandments in their proper context, they do have much to do with one another. In the ancient world, the commandments, or rather this commandment, was understood to refer primarily to adult children, um, as evidenced by the writings of the pastors and the rabbis of the time. It wasn't so much about children obeying their parents, that was a given, but it was about adult children taking care of their parents in their old age. Now, therein lies the connection to the Sabbath commandment. As one's parents come upon the Sabbath of their life, their years of productivity having been, having been spent, it's their children's responsibility to honor them and to honor them with rest. A scholar put it this way, human beings do not cease to have worth and significance when, their t- when the time of their productive working years has run its course. Parents are to be respected and cared for in the time of their feebleness, diminished activity, or senility. When they enter upon their Sabbath rest, they are to be shown respect and honor, such as they were shown in their time of active membership in the community. And so that our parents rest in the Sabbath of their lives becomes our burden, a matter of honoring their lives, a concept that our society can learn much from, the way the elderly are treated. It's quite disgraceful how they're scrubbed from the picture and consigned to poor treatment and loneliness. But taken in this sense, as the commandment referring to adult children, the fourth and fifth commandments are the foundation for any biblical society one in which rest is granted to the worker, preventing exploitation and domination, and one in which that same rest is granted to parents and grandparents, that they end their years honorably. Of course, the commandment has more to say. And really, rather than having this sermon revolve around a central theme, so the books tell you, to have a central theme, I want to, with this message, give three relatively disconnected meditations on the fifth commandment. 
Now, one of them will be about where parents' honor comes from, where their honor comes from. Another one's going to be about wisdom and humility. And the last one's going to be about the family and the church. So we're going to try and take uh, these three meditations. So it won't be as tidy as past messages, but I hope it's going to provoke a closer look at the commandments and or this commandment and what it requires in our lives. So, as I've said, our first meditation is an attempt to answer the question, where do a father's and mother's honor come from? Now, the commandment is explicit. They deserve honor. But the question we're asking is, where does that honor come from? Why are they worthy of honor? And it's not an unimportant question to ask. In fact, our answer to that question will influence how we understand our obedience to the command. Now, I think the answer comes from the words of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says as follows, For this reason I bow my, knee, my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, our English translations miss the play on words here. In the Greek, it's very explicit. The word for family in the Greek is patria. It's, de- it's derived from the word father, which is the word pater. So in English, family is not named from father. So we kind of miss what's going on there. It should more literally read, For this reason, I bow my knees before the pater, from whom, everyone, from whom every patria in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the human patria, the human family, is named from or modeled after the pater, the father. In other words, human fatherhood is a creaturely analogy to the God who is father. The very concept of fatherhood originates in the divine nature And only by derivation does it belong to creatures. God's fatherhood is not patterned after ours, but ours His. He is the original Father. One commentator put it this way, The All-Father is the source of fatherhood wherever it's found. And yet the commandment does not pertain primarily to fathers, but mothers too. And of course, God's fatherhood encompasses both human fatherhood and motherhood. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Man needs woman to become father. Woman needs man to become mother. Yet, only God himself, or God needs only himself, rather, to be the giver of life. So parents in their creaturely way, are an analogy to the original and primary paternity of God. Parents point to God. They look to God. They derive their honor from God. So it's this which entitles parents to their honor. Now, it's enough reason to honor them in that they give us life, but immeasurably more so in whom their life-giving capacities come from. God alone possesses the power to create life, 
but he graciously shares that capacity with father and mother. They are co-creators with him. And I think here, an understanding that what entitles parents to honor is that they reflect the father. They are co-creators with him. I think there we strike the heart of the commandment and what it's really about. The commandment is about honoring life. The commandment is about gratitude. Stanley Howaross, an American theologian, frames the commandment this way. He says, By noting that we are creatures, creations of mothers and fathers, the Decalogue tells us that we have life as a gift. Our parents are an ever-present reminder that we were created, that the significance of our lives is not exclusively self-derived. And so we're commanded to honor our parents because from them comes our life. No one simply popped into existence, but was born into a chain of dependency that culminates in God. So, the honoring of our parents is the honoring of those who have seen to our life from its very beginning. By honoring our parents, we honor God. And by honoring, or by honoring our parents, rather, we honor life. And by honoring life, we honor God. And that's why disobedience to the command is such an intolerable offense. Again, listen to how one scholar put it. To curse mother and father is an enormity that cannot be endured. It is a cursing of love itself, of life itself, a cursing indeed of oneself. The dishonoring of mother and father means attacking the very springs and source of life itself. So, to curse father and mother is to curse life. And it's the most profound ingratitude. And it really is a contempt for everything precious in the world. And ultimately, the giver of those precious things. I cannot dishonor my parents without dishonoring their parents before them. Indeed, I can't even, if I honor dishonor my parents, I'm dishonoring their parents. And the whole world is swept up into my disdain. I hate any notion of dependence, that my life or my identity comes from anyone but me. I want to be my own. And so there is then this sacred boundary that encompasses, encompasses parents as the spring of life. And that boundary cannot be transgressed without a more basic contempt for life itself. And so our parents as the embodiment of the gift of life, those through whom we receive life are those that the commandment teaches us to honor. And it teaches us to honor them, I think, with gratitude in particular. Now, it's an intensely intimate relationship, ours to our parents. Because really, think about this, in honoring them, we are treasuring our life. We are honoring our life. Because our parents, in a sense, our our life. They've given it to us. It seems to be grateful for one is to be grateful for the other. To honor your parents is really to honor your own life, to respect your own life. And to respect your own life is subsequently to respect your parents. 
And so the commandment is about honoring life. It's about honoring the gift of life, and that comes to its most perfect expression in honoring our parents. And yet, because that relationship is so intimate, it makes it all the more complex. Perhaps the most complex of all human relationships, that between a parent and their child, a child and their parents. It's quite common to come to respect a person and then find that their family holds quite a different opinion. And not necessarily because they're a hypocrite, although that may be the case sometimes, but simply due to the complexities of the family dynamic. And thus for many, the idea of honoring our parents is not a straightforward proposition. It's complicated. It conjures up mixed feelings, old resentments, love and guilt. So understanding the commandment is straightforward, honor thy father and mother. Applying it, however, is fraught with a difficulty. So, minimally speaking, minimally speaking, what does it mean to honor one's parents? Well, it means just that. Honor does not necessarily mean love. Honor does not necessarily mean obedience. Honor does not necessarily mean a close relationship. Now, of course, wherever those are possible, we ought to strive toward those things. But, as we all know, those things are not always possible. What is possible in every situation is honor. And it's quite an intuitive concept, honor is. So to strip honor bare, consider its etymology. The Hebrew word for honor comes from the word weight. It comes from the word weight. And so we know what it means to treat our parents lightly. We know what it means to disregard them and what they tell us and all that they represent. But what does it mean to treat our parents weightily? Right? To, to give them the honor, the, the, regard them with the weight that is properly theirs. Now, it's a question worth giving thought to. And no situation is the same, right? No, no family, no child here is going to have the same exact situation with their parents. And therefore, no answer, no answer to the question will be the same. It's going to look different in each family, in each situation to honor one's parents. And so what I would do is just encourage you to talk to someone whose parents have passed away they probably have the most clear-eyed vision about the relationship and really what it means to honor their parents. So, we honor parents because they derive that honor as earthly analogies of God. That's the first meditation. We come now to the second meditation. And that is that the commandment on the part of parents is about wisdom. And on the children's part, it's about humility. Now, some will become parents, but everyone is a child. Everyone is a child. So it teaches us to honor our fathers and mothers, not simply because they brought us into the world, that's reason enough, but also because they've lived longer in the world. So we honor them because our life is from them, but we honor them because they've lived longer in this world. 
And so it's not age alone that entitles our parents to honor, but what comes with age, and that is wisdom. It's true. Not all become wise with age, nor does wisdom belong to the aged alone. Yet it's generally true that the longer one lives, the wiser they become. And regardless, every parent is more understanding than their five-year-old. It's not how wise parents are in relation uh, to the wisest among us, but how wise they are in relation to their children. And thus, our parents, even with their modest and problematical experience, are set over us as elders. And again, one's parents represent not merely their modest experience and understanding, but the experience and understanding of the generation previous to them, and that of the generation previous to them. Parents embody an inheritance of wisdom going back from generation to generation all the way back to the very beginning. Now, in the context of the nation of Israel, that wisdom which parents embody consisted primarily in the commandments delivered at Sinai. This is Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7. It says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to honor their children, or that they should teach to their children that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their generation that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. So, the current generation taught the upcoming generation that in turn, they might teach the generation to follow them. An inheritance, a collective wisdom passed from fathers to mothers to sons and daughters who would themselves become fathers and mothers and pass it to their sons and daughters. There's this inherent relation in the fifth commandment from one generation to the next. That the younger generation would regard the older generation and receive the wisdom. Hence, the preciousness of tradition. As the apostle says, this is 1 Corinthians 11.2. Now I praise you because you remember in me everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So tradition, and I'm speaking of the healthy and beneficial kind of tradition, does not originate from a desire to control and stifle, but really in a respect for father and mother and their hard-won wisdom. In contrast, the Scripture says that we were born yesterday and know nothing. It's a recognition of our finitude and that the past has value. And so because that wisdom is valued and not scorned, the upcoming generation welcomes it and they learn from it. Tradition is the offshoot of obedience to the command to honor father and mother. So, the fifth commandment implies a given respect for the wisdom of the past. And it sees to it that that wisdom is passed from one generation to the next. 
parents assume a posture of authority because their experience and the experience of the generations prior to them, and children assume a posture of humility because they lack experience and understanding. So the commandment teaches us then to cultivate the most unpopular of all virtues, and that is humility. That contrary to today's dominant ideology, the past, represented in our parents and grandparents, does indeed have something to teach us, something to learn from. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then the next steps in wisdom are the fear of one's parents. In Proverbs chapter 1, we're told exactly this. Verses 8 and 9, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. So the humility that the commandment requires of us in relation to our parents and their wisdom issues very concretely in obedience. They've lived longer. They've been given charge of us. And as elders in wisdom, our parents are to be obeyed. Now, at this point, the commandment calls us to recognize within it two counter-movements about obedience. And the first is that as much as our parents are authorities over our lives, and therefore to be obeyed and to be honored, they are only secondary authorities. The fifth commandment, to honor thy father and mother, is relativized by the first commandment to have no other gods before me. As our prime parent, it is the Father whom we must honor and obey more than any other parent. Think about Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. So parental authority is first on earth, but it is not in heaven. And so when the two commandments come into conflict, and for the most part, such occasions are rare, I hope, we must side with the first commandment and choose to have no other father but him. Karl Barth rightly says that there is sometimes an orphaned state required for the kingdom of heaven. And an orphan state that I'm sure some of you know, that in seeking to be obedient to God, it has brought rift, a rift into your family and parental relationships. And so as, as much as this is a difficult thing, it is a good thing, this relativizing parental authority. It's a good thing. And why is it a good thing? Because it puts parental authority under a higher authority. Fathers and mothers are not given free reign, permitted to either domineer or neglect their children however they please. Instead, their parenthood is accountable to whom they derived it from, the Father in heaven. His perfect fatherhood is the standard by which fathers and mothers are to be judged. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. So it creates a necessary distance that actually protects children and parents. But as we've said, that's one side of the commandment. There is another direction as well. And that is that human parenthood, um, as much as it is relativized by God's parenthood, it's also reinforced by it. God's fatherhood reinforces parental parenthood. Because to honor father and mother, to honor father and mother is necessarily to honor the one from whom their fatherhood and motherhood comes from. Right, Romans 13, there is no authority except from God. So our parents' authority is not properly their authority. It doesn't originate in them, but it's derived from really the only authority who is God. And so the apostle directs us, this is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so these words don't mean that parental that the parental word is the Lord's word to be regarded as divine law, but that one is to obey their parents in the Lord. The parental word may indeed be a faulty word, and often the child is able to recognize it as such. But unless it is sin to obey, unless it is abuse, unless it is something harmful, it must be obeyed. And obeyed not necessarily for the parents' sake, but for the Lord's, in obedience to His perfect command rather than their faulty command. So it creates a distance between the two and a necessary distance. And so we're bidden by the commandment to honor our parents with obedience, but that obedience is accountable to a higher obedience. Parents are indeed the most basic form of authority in one's life, not the government, nor the university, nor anything else, and as such, we are to submit to their wisdom. Yet that wisdom is qualified by the one who is wisdom, right? And in our obedience to his wisdom, we're sometimes called to disobey parental wisdom. We have to hold the two commandments in tension. And of course, that takes wisdom. And so this finally leads us to our last meditation. I want to consider the fifth commandment and its relationship to the church. And, and, and really, it seems that the fifth commandment is needed more than ever right now. Family disintegration is a serious problem, probably the most serious problem in our society. And so it would seem appropriate, as we conclude this message, to underscore the importance of the family, to double down on our commitment to the family. But that's not what we're going to do because I think that's not what the Scriptures do. The family, for all its importance and foundational nature, is not ultimate. It's a means to an end. And the family, as we understand it now, as it was understood then, is radically subverted in the pages of the New Testament. It has, of course, a few things to say about how families should operate, a few passages about how to raise children and uh, about how to operate a marriage. But undoubtedly, 
The focus of the Scripture lies elsewhere. It has much more to say about the church, the true family. Christ did not come to build the family, he says, but to tear it apart. Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, he says this, Do you not think, do not think, do you think rather, that I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Christ has come, he says, to pit family members against one another, not to heal division, but to incite it. And it's hard to look at the church's beginnings as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles and not come to any other conclusion. Christ's heavenly family, the church, comes into being only as earthly families are torn apart. In that context, it was the family and ethnic ties that constituted one of the greatest challenges to the church. And it was no different for Christ's own family. To them, he says, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside speak, uh, seeking to speak to you. Jesus answered them, answered the one who was telling him, and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So Christ redefines the family, and rather sharply. And as those who confess him, we must confess his definition of the family. The fundamental family unit consists not in blood relations, but of those, Jesus says, who do the will of the Father in heaven. And so biological birth and all its accompanying loyalties are rendered subordinate to spiritual birth. They, they take a second, secondary position to the spiritual birth. Now, now, why is that the case? It's simply because our spiritual birth will outlast the present age, and it will endure into the resurrection. So think of it this way. Family points backward toward the old, the way things were at the beginning. And the heavenly family, the church, points forward to the new, the way things will be in the end. And so in the resurrection, family ties will be dissolved. There will be neither husband nor wife, and, neither, and therefore neither sons nor daughters. And so rather than our bodies our resurrected bodies, bearing the likeness of our father and mother, they will bear the likeness of Christ. They will be conformed into his image. There will be only one family in the age to come, and that is the father's family. As the scripture says, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's plan is to take us and conform us to the image of Christ. Why? That Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren, that he would be our brother and that we would be shaped into his 
image. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and, these whom he, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So earthly fathers and mothers in the age to come will become obsolete because the father, because the father, the one to whom they pointed all along will at last, 1 Corinthians 15, become all in all. So what will happen is that the shadow will give way to the reality. And so what we want to recognize now is that that reality is already present in the church. Right? The heavenly family limits the role of the earthly family. That's what Jesus' terrible statements are about. We, we must put those two in order. And that doesn't mean blood relations are erased. Peter and uh, Andrew and James and John are still sibling apostles. The apostle Peter still issues orders to fathers and their children. Yet, the waters of baptism are thicker than family blood. So the fifth commandment, therefore, comes to its most perfect expression, not in the domestic household, but in the church. The apostle Paul calls the Galatians, my children. He calls himself the father of the Corinthians. He even honors a spiritual mother of his own when he sends greetings to the mother of Rufus, who has been a mother to me as well, he says. And of course, our brothers and sisters are those who have been born from above. And these aren't simply metaphor. This is reality. So the new breaks in and the old must give way. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not dissing the family. It has its place in the church, a very important place. I think sometimes we're just a little too focused on the family. My aim is simply to situate the family relative to the church which is the only family that will continue into the age to come. And, and, and here's where I want to connect us to the fifth commandment. And not simply right to situate the family in relation to the church, but to show honor to members of the church that rarely receive honor, and that is the unmarried and the childless. They are a very, very important part of the church's witness. Again, which is not to maintain the status quo, to look back to the old. The church's witness is to point to the new creation. And so it's their vocation, those who are unmarried, those who are childless, it's their vocation to remind the church what it's really destined for. Again, remember Christ's words. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, it's the unmarried and childless who witness to the age to come, who remind us of our true destiny. And you know, this happens... I don't, it's not here at CBC, or at least I've never seen it, but it does happen in the wider church culture, is that people who, feel, who are unmarried or childless feel like they're inadequate, or that they're even missing something in relation to everybody else because the family is such a focus. And it seems like a burden to be this. Again, sometimes the church makes it feel like a burden, but it's a blessing. 
The apostle says that the business of marriage and child rearing, and, and this is so radical, he says, are things of the world. And he says that when one is committed to those activities, one's interests are divided. They have to think about raising kids. They have to think about pleasing their spouse, all this other stuff. Quite radically, Paul says, that's the things of the world. But singles, those who are not in that position, he says, are undistracted. And they're able to give the entirety of their devotion to the Lord. And he says, he doesn't make it a command, of course, but he says, I wish that everyone could be like this. Because that's living for the age to come. He says, those who are fathers and mothers, they're to live as if they weren't because the end of the ages are upon us. This is all 1 Corinthians 7. So those people among us are to be valued, so valued, because they anticipate what's to come. Where the only, again, the only fatherhood is the father, father's fatherhood, and the only family or the only brotherhood um, is, and the only marriage is that to Christ. And of course, the apostles write. There are instances when commitment to, commitments to being a family clearly stand against the uh, interests of the wider church family. But the unmarried and the childless are free from such concerns. And of course, it's not that state in general, but it's using that state to devote entirely to the Lord. And also, we should honor these people because they remind us that the church grows not because our capacity, our natural capacity to give birth, but through the power of the Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit. There's some radical promises in Isaiah about the barren. One of them is this, Isaiah 54, 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joy, shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one, the one who cannot have children, will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. Of course, we see that even in the Apostle Paul. He's a spiritual father who gives birth to children who will be his into the age to come. So, and just winding this up, it's appropriate then to culminate this sermon on the fifth commandment by looking to the reality which the commandment points to. When our earthly parents will have run their course, and when earthly families will have served their purpose, and at last, the thing to which they pointed all along steps out of the shadows and into the light. That 1 Corinthians 15 passage, the son will turn over the kingdom to the father and he will be under the father and it says the father will be all and all. And then things will be completed. Let's pray.